Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. This will be the day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My Country Tears of Thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. It was formerly known as the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on a hot August Wednesday at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Dr. King called it the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. And that day, ironically, 60 years ago this week, was the 100th year anniversary of Abraham Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation. America, according to King, had defaulted on a promissory note and given black people a bad check. And King declared that the 250,000 people that had come to Washington that day were there to cash that check and redeem America, what he called the fierce urgency of now. About three quarters of the way through the speech, in a little known fact, the famous gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, who had endured racism her entire life, seated on the stage, shouted to Dr. King, tell them about the dream. King looked over and pushed his prepared text to the side, and for the next few minutes, including what you just heard, spoke off the top of his head in what is arguably the greatest description of the aspiration for freedom and equality, for what the United States could and should be in history. He said, white people's destiny is part of black people's destiny, that our freedom was bound to their freedom. It was truly a radical statement. A year later, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, barring 
discrimination in public accommodations. The next year, the Voting Rights Act, guaranteeing everyone an equal right to vote. And three years later, Dr. King was dead, shot in the head by an assassin on a Memphis hotel balcony. Two months later, Robert F. Kennedy was gunned down in a hotel kitchen in California. And America's battle with race went on and on and continues to this day. Sixty years after King's speech and plea for equal rights and racial harmony, a white man in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, walked into a Dollar General store with an AR-15 style rifle bearing Nazi markings and gunned down three black people, making King's dream still unfulfilled. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, where we talk about these issues day in and day out. And I think it was appropriate to remember Dr. King's speech 60 years later and the distance we still have to travel. We're going to talk today about energy, about Ben and Jerry's vanilla ice cream, and we're going to talk about music and the Capital City concerts in Montpelier coming up later this month. As always, we hope you'll join us with your questions and comments. The number to call is 244 244- 1777 or email us at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We're going to be joined by our first guest, uh, Peter Walk, after the break. Uh, we're going to talk about a new study released uh, last, this week by Efficiency Vermont, talking about Vermonters' energy burden and how much they spend in their household, of their household income on energy. It's got some startling figures in it. And we're going to get to it. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Friendly Pioneer, WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. Vermonters spend, on average, 11% of their household income on energy. That's more than one in every $10 spent on heating, driving, and keeping the lights on. And those energy burdens fall disproportionately on those Vermonters least able to afford it. Those are the conclusions of a new report by Energy by Efficiency Vermont. And uh, we have the Managing Director of Efficiency Vermont with us on the show, uh, Peter Walk, no stranger to this show. He hails from Montpelier, has been Deputy Secretary of Natural Resources for Governor Phil Scott, and has worked extensively on climate policy for a very long time. Peter Walk, welcome to the show. Kevin, thanks for having me. Okay. Tell us about the study and what it found. Sure. This is the third iteration of what we call our uh, energy burden report. It looks at – it takes a very uh, – basic calculation and looked at the total cost of energy as a percentage of of the median income of a population. Um, the energy included in, in this uh, component are, are uh, transportation energy burden, which accounts for 45% of the overall energy burden or, or the energy costs for Vermonters. Uh, heating or thermal energy, uh, which is about 35%, and then electricity, which accounts for 20% of the overall cost of, of, of energy. Um, we looked at it, uh, we traditionally looked at it at the town level um, so that we can uh, determine areas of the state that, that might uh, need uh, particularly more attention um, in helping to relieve that uh, burden and those high costs. 
The other component um, that we brought in this year, which has really uh, given us a new way of looking at the data, is to look at the data at the census block group level, uh, which takes it down to smaller uh, areas within a community. It's especially useful in, in urban areas in Vermont, um, where we can take a look at different neighborhoods and different areas within a community to understand if there's a discrepancy between the overall sort of community-wide average and uh, what's happening in a specific uh, census block group. So that's, uh, it's been a really interesting and useful update to the report and given us some more insights. And Peter, I, I noticed that the highest burden, uh, energy burden in all of Vermont is the south, if I have this right, the south end of Barry City. Is that right? That is correct. That was, that was kind of shocking. Can you tell us why that is? So what we what we generally see most of the time is that the primary driver of energy burden is the is is the income side of the equation. So the yeah. median income of the communities typically is the primary driver of of what um, of what we see in terms of energy burden. The uh, reality is we also tend to see lower energy costs in some of those areas, mostly because people are trying to control their own costs. They're trying to spend less on things because they may have less to spread around uh, to the various needs within their uh, their family. So if you are uh, poor, you're spending more on energy, despite the fact that you can't afford it and you're trying to conserve. Well, what... Actually, what we see is the sort of reverse. What people are trying to self-limit, right? We, they're trying to spend as, as little as they can on energy, but they they still have a high energy burden because right. of of their the the amount of their income that's going out every year for those energy costs. I see. You know, okay. we we know that there's only a certain amount of conservation you can do. You still need to be able to take your kids to school. You need still need to be able to get to work. You still need to be able to uh, go to doctor's appointments and all those things and heat your home and keep the lights on. Um, there's only so far we, people can go uh, by themselves. And, Peter, you released this report just after the, the flooding. What, mm-hmm. what role does the flooding play in the energy burden for Vermonters? Um, I think it does a it, it highlights the the data that we're seeing um, sort of shows the many of the areas in which flooding occurred also have a high energy burden. Uh, I think your Barry City example is a good one, uh, where parts of Barry City that were heavily impacted by the flooding have a high energy burden already, and so uh, that's part of the reason why we pivoted quickly uh, following the floods to and to help. Uh, develop programs to help folks get into new, new, more efficient heating and cooling equipment, um, and hot water heaters and the like to be able to move that quickly. And I'm excited to say we'll be launching those programs next week, uh, making those available and making them available to folks, anybody who made purchases following the flood in flood impacted communities. Okay. Uh, and 
you you say in the report, and I'm gonna I want to talk about disparities uh, and equity here. Ad- addressing these disparities is a matter of equity. Rebuilding to address them is now a matter of climate justice. It's not only an issue of rebuilding homes, businesses, apartments, and manufactured homes right now. We need to rebuild for safety, affordability, and comfort in the coming decades. We can't allow floods to reinforce historic inequities. So. That's a mouthful. Let's mm-hmm. st- let's start with uh, sort of under-resourced and poor communities hit harder by the floods. Uh, like it or not, winter is coming, and yeah. we've got this dual problem of rebuilding these towns uh, at the same time trying to get heat into buildings uh, and – Hardened cities and towns for future climate events, but also getting heat into people's homes so they can stay warm this winter. Sure, and that's and that's the priority of this program is to figure out how to get uh, how to get folks help because uh, what we know from the FEMA process through through you know hands-on learning in the last month and a half is that. Uh, while the, the individuals who are out there helping with, with, uh, helping through FEMA, helping folks access funds have been, uh, wonderful for folks to work with, uh, the available funds and the support and the process are not what we might like to see if we were, uh, starting that from scratch. And so it's complicated, you know, so the amount of initial assistance for getting a home occupiable Again, is is limited to forty one thousand dollars, and if you your home was heavily impacted by the flood, that's not going to be sufficient dollars to help folks move forward. And so, there are not going to be enough dollars to go around for. And so, people are going to have to figure out where they make uh, choices. And what we're trying to do with these programs is to be additive to fill in the voids uh, that might have been left by FEMA assistance to help people get into modern, more efficient equipment. Um, so that they can save money in the long run and not simply uh, scrap around and figure out what they can put in, where they can get it based on with the dollars that they have available, because it's a daunting task for folks. Peter, is this the $36 million package for flood relief that has been it, it, talked about? It is, yep. Okay. Can you say more about the details about when this sure, can, when this launches? Uh, so we are launching these programs starting next week. Uh, the first piece of that that will that will launch is a ten million dollar program for uh, residential customers um, that is designed for appliance um, replacement. Um, so that is you know your he- heating systems, hot water, um, some other basic appliances that may have been uh, impacted by the flooding. Um, that will launch next week. Um, Purchases made prior to uh, next week uh, after the flooding, if you were impacted by the floods, um, will be eligible. Um, so we'll be able to help get folks get through it. We do want to be clear that you should go through the full FEMA and insurance process first, uh, because taking on an incentive uh, in the in a interim or before you've uh, started the FEMA process can impact your FEMA award. And we want to make sure people can get as much resources as they can to get back on their feet. Um, so that will launch next week. Um, the the first thing to do is to give us a call at Efficiency Vermont, and we can walk you through what you might be eligible for, what opportunities you have. Um, those are those programs are limited to um, to low and moderate income populations. 
So up to 120% of the area median income. We also have tables on our website that show how those uh, those those um, incomes break down, so you can see whether you're eligible. Um, they, so that's that's the first part, and then we uh, working with the public service department. We're also going to roll out additional dollars to help people um, uh, upgrade their electric panel to be able to electrify different heating systems or uh, to allow for an electric vehicle charger, um, things of that nature. And then there's also some additional ARPA dollars around uh, heat pump, hot water heater um, switchouts. Uh, which both the electric panel and the heat pump water here are ARPA funded and uh, will be uh, extended beyond the sort of flood recovery period. And then finally, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. There's a million dollars in funding for businesses as well to uh, that we were able to identify from unspent uh, energy efficiency charge money to be able to help businesses. Uh, get back on their feet and replace uh, needed appliances as well. And Peter, what's the cutoff in terms of income for people who would qualify for that program? Sure, it is. It is a. It is depends on where you live and the size of your household. Okay. Uh, the area median income is 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 based on you know the area in which you live within the state and whether or not you have it's just you or you have multiple family members um, as part of that. And so happy to. Um, you, you can find those tables on our website um, and happy to point folks to it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read a phone number, 888-921-5990, if you want to reach Efficiency Vermont and get started on this process. Or just go to their website, efficiencyvermont.com, and it's all right there, and you can read about the uh, Vermont's energy burden what else do we need to know about this report? Um, it, it's really focusing on the data that helps us learn where the burdens are so we can start alleviating some of that, right? It does. And, and I think that what we, what it helps me think through is as we, as we work to implement, uh, Vermont's aggressive climate goals, trying to understand, you know, sort of to be able to reach those goals, we need to be able to have everybody get to participate in energy savings and greenhouse gas emissions reductions. That means programs need to be accessible. They need to be uh, easy to use. They need to be scaled to the need um, because if you can afford an electric vehicle or you can afford a large weatherization project and understand how you know can access financing and make it pay for itself, then those are easier projects to do. But if you don't, if you don't have the resources to be able to even get started, we need to figure out how to address those concerns and to be able to meet people where they are and help them, you know, to, to make uh, choices or help them to know what uh, options are available to them and, and things they might want to pursue. Uh, funny enough, we have a caller that wants to talk to you. His name is Caleb, and I think he's somewhere deep in Addison County uh, with a fiddle on his shoulder. Caleb, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin, and hi, Peter. Caleb, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's nice to it's nice to hear from your hear your voice and just to hear your take on this report. I read it um, when I saw some coverage in, in Digger, I guess, yesterday or the day before, so it's great. Caleb, uh, you're in the legislature. What's the legislature going to be doing when it comes back in January about these issues? Well, you know, that's a big question, of course. But if if I 
may deflect just a little, um, I'll say what I, I'll be I'll be certainly pushing for, and what I think are good things to bring to the to the. Uh, and these are things that I've mentioned to folks where I sit on the general housing committee, such as um, Sue Minter with Capstone. And, and what it has to do is the electric portion of what Peter mentioned, the 20% of our total, that's 20% of the total today. I think be, with our energy transition that um, we're moving towards, I think we'll triple that usage in 20 years. And so that 20% will become 60%. And I think a big area of that that I wanted to just focus my comments on is um, electric vehicles. Um, one thing that I'll maybe do a little friendly myth busting is that electric vehicles are actually incredibly and are sort of this sleeper um, this sleeper opportunity for particularly um, low income Vermonters. I just wanted to run a couple numbers. Um, first of all, if you were running an electric vehicle today for a hundred miles on Leaf, uh, it would cost four dollars fifty. If you ran a 30 mile per hour, 30 mile per gallon gas vehicle, it would cost uh, $12.65. So just let that 280% increase. Setting that aside, a brand new Nissan Leaf starts at $28,000. If you qualify for the top state rebate, $4,000, that is worth 166 a month on a 24-month lease. That means you're often putting 500 down, and if you're in GMP, you might have a $75 monthly payment. I've got a friend, a constituent, with a $65 monthly payment. So, you know, it's a payment more like a cell phone. And, um, and like a cell phone, you charge it to 100% every night. So it's a paradigm shift. It's not about going down to New York City in your car. But what it is about is a daily driver that you literally never have to gas away from home or gas at all, but charge away from home. And, and that, that's the kind of savings you're talking about. So sorry to be long-winded. There's a lot of numbers, but we have to keep in mind that we're going to triple our um, electricity usage in 20 years. However, there are significant financial benefits already baked in. Um, and, yes, it's a combination of the private market, private financing, as well as the you know, winning proposition and a lot of these folks where they are, to Peter's point, is um, telling them about it and getting rid of barriers, keeping dealers from charging over MSRP, which I heard with the Climate Caucus to introduce legislation to do that last year. So there are things for us to do, but a lot of it is enabling, plugging people into these, um, to these sort of, you know, winning formula. So thank you for letting me chime in. Peter, before the break, uh, Caleb talked about electric cars and how kind of in a contrarian way that because they reduce so much of the energy burden on the driver uh, and that there are so many subsidies out there, you can drive the cost, the monthly payment for an electric car way, way down. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. Uh, a, a friendly amendment to what Caleb said, the 20% of, of use, uh, it, it's not actually 20% of use that electricity represents. Right now, it's 20% of people's cost. Uh, the actual actual use is higher than that, but that's because uh, the electric systems generally are fairly efficient. And so um, 
we will see that as we electrify more things, we will see that start to change uh, pretty significantly, that percentage of use. Um, electric vehicles can be a game changer, uh, and they can also represent, uh, you know, different challenges for people along the way. I think for uh, the economics certainly work. I have seen that in my own life. Um, but the, some of the other the other barriers about where folks live and what um, what uh, ability they have to access um, different vehicles that can can reach the longer road where they might live down or uh, where charging networks are are something that are are remain a concern for folks. And I think uh, understanding what's out there and what options they have is really important. Um, and it's something that's, uh, you know, sort of going to be a, a huge part of our, of our, you know, future as a whole as a society. It, at the same time, it's hard to, to, to figure out precisely how all of that changes. Um, we've, um, you know, trying to figure out the sort of different ways in which you, you know, you use a electric vehicle, uh, and how, where you charge up and come home every night and plug it in rather than, uh, needing to stop at a at a gas station for uh, for your typical fuel ups. So you know it's it's interesting. Um, one of the biggest expenses that I've noticed being a Washington Electric guy in Central Vermont is my hundred amp service at my house, uh, which means that I can only <clears throat> basically trickle charge my car, uh, and it takes days to charge that big battery. Uh, and to get uh, a stage two charger installed at my house requires me to go to 200 amp service, which is a, a large ticket item, $5,000 or something. And that's a barrier we've got to get over, I think. Yeah, I, I'm actually really, ex- I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a, a, is a key barrier. Getting those, getting that level two charger installed and, you know, upgrading equipment to be able to handle that level of charger is a key component of of that transition um part of the 36 million dollars we were just talking about is 20 million dollars for low and moderate income vermonters to be able to get a fully paid for panel upgrade uh, kevin so, could i oops apologies go ahead caleb go ahead uh, well I, I i thought maybe peter was at a at a moment of being done there i don't want to jump in i have oh, no, to say about that, your service i'm all good caleb go ahead Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think you're confusing your 100 amps with your 120 volts versus 240 volts because it's true it takes days at 120 volts. Now there may be an issue where your electrician says, "Well, this thing's going to draw 40 amps, and we see your panel's already full to 80 amps, so really you should have an upgrade." That could be an issue. But if you were to turn off other things in your house, then what you need to plug in to do level two charging at home is simply a dryer plug. It might be a four prong instead of a three prong, but we're talking about a 200, the same thing you'd, you know, run a, you know, a bandsaw off of. And so it's not, it's not actually that big a deal. I mean, because usually most cars come with a free charger. So for example, when I put in 240 at my house, I just extended it off a run I had going up to my sugar house, and it, it did cost me 500 bucks installed um, for the plug, but, you know, because um, I had to run about 30 feet. But anyway, you could hook uh, 220 in your house right now. Everybody does. The 100 amps to 200 amps is only an issue for people who are using all 
of their 100 amps. So just to clarify. Yeah. Now that that's right. Um, and in addition, uh, Bill Powell, the energy guru at Washington Electric, tells me that they have to put a new transformer on the pole next to my house, and they uh, that's been on back order for oh I don't know a thousand years, and is going to get here you know next year. But uh, we, we'll get there. It, it seems to me. Uh, Peter Walk, that we are in the midst of an energy transition here that is a massive economic uh, shift in the world and in this country, and that you guys at Efficiency Vermont are right in the middle of it. And I guess my question to you is, where are we in that transition? If you look, you know, when we look back 50 years from now, where are we in that transition? Are we at the very, very beginning, or are we in the middle? Where are we exactly? Um, I would say we're still in that sort of early adopter phase. Yeah. I think we're starting the transition from there, but the the reality of um, where where what we're seeing in terms of unprecedented investment in these areas is is huge between uh, the the way the state has chosen to prioritize the American Rescue Plan Act, the ARPA dollars, uh, with $200 million focused on climate-related activities to what's coming in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, money, where guidance is just coming now and, and the state is just grappling with how it might use those dollars, is going to make things way more accessible than they might have been to overcome the upfront cost. And, you know, as, as sort of Caleb mentioned, that's already happening, overcoming that upfront cost so that the operational savings can accrue uh, to, to folks and so that we can lower that energy burden over the course of time. It's, it's an exciting moment, and I think we're going to be looking back on this moment as an inflection point. Fascinating. And you can read all about it at EfficiencyVermont.com. Message, uh, the bottom line coming out of this conversation with Peter Walk is that there is money out there, 36 million bucks, uh, as a flood relief package for people to start transitioning from their fossil fuel heating systems and transportation to electric. So go to EfficiencyVermont.com, read the study, read Peter Walk's blog post about this, and uh, give them a call, and they'll walk you through the details. Peter Walk, thanks so much for joining us. Kevin, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. Okay, anytime. Peter Walk, not only is he the managing director of uh, Efficiency Vermont, he is a Montpelier volunteer who spent, uh, I believe, two weeks of his vacation uh, volunteering for flood relief right downtown there at the hub, uh, helping to manage uh, volunteer efforts. And uh, he's he's been a mainstay in flood relief. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to have some fun. We're going to talk about Ben and Jerry's vanilla ice cream. We've got a, a, a great guest. You know, in the, in the, in the, in the back, in the, uh, gossipy back green rooms of talk shows, the bookers always brag about the gets that they get. You know, they got this guest or they got that celebrity guest. Well, we've got a big get today. Uh, he's, he's the, uh, flavor master. That's my term. Uh, he was the flavor master at Ben and Jerry's for many years, and he's going to talk to us about how the ice cream is made and and why the New York Times 
uh, recently declared Ben and Jerry's vanilla ice cream the best vanilla ice cream in the world. That's coming up. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio.